Come behind the curtain and follow private investigator Sheila Waisaki for Season 6, Defamation or Truth, in the matter of Christian Andriacchio. Mike Simmons, my attorney from the defamation lawsuit with me. And Mike, please introduce yourself. Tell everyone what you do. Uh, I'm Mike Simmons. I'm a partner with the law firm of Cosmic Simmons and Brown. We're headquartered in Jackson, Mississippi. We have offices across the country. I practice primarily uh, in the state of Mississippi, both in state and federal court. Uh, defend lawsuits such as the one that you and your podcast found themselves in and uh, been doing it for 28 years. Coming to you for a defamation lawsuit, was this an unusual lawsuit? It was unusual insofar as the subject matter that gave rise to the claims was a matter of great public interest, not just in Mississippi, but nationwide, that being the death of Christian Andriacchio. So, uh, because the claims arose from uh, your podcast without warning uh, on Christian's uh, death, it was somewhat unusual. Was this a First Amendment issue? Well, the, the First Amendment uh, has a number of uh, provisions being that would affect uh, you and, and without warning, that being uh, the, the free speech clause and the freedom of the press or, or free press clause. Uh, both were implicated by this. So can you define defamation? Uh, it varies from state to state, but largely Mississippi follows kind of the common definition of defamation uh, used throughout the country. Uh, there are four elements. Uh, the first is a false or defamatory statement about the plaintiff. Uh, the second is an unprivileged communication of the statement to a third party. Uh, the third element is fault on the part of the defendant, amounting at least to negligence. And then the fourth element is uh, either special damages or presumed damages. Uh, there, so special damages are is another term for economic damages. So, for example, if a defamatory statement causes a plaintiff to lose income or the ability to get a job, that would be a be considered special damages. Presumed damages are uh, damages that the law presumes to uh, be suffered by a person in certain categories of defamation. The first, uh, uh, you know, for example, uh, defamation, uh, uh, defamatory words that injures a party in their business trade or profession. Uh, if the plaintiff proves that, then the law presumes that the plaintiff has been damaged. And that would, had the case not been dismissed uh, with prejudice, meaning it cannot be refiled, uh, that would have been an issue we would have presented to the court in a motion for summary judgment or a motion to dismiss Mr. Miller's claims against you and without warning. But we never, we never got to that stage because the case was dismissed. 
Defamation is a very difficult, falls into the category of law known as a tort, that is a personal wrong against another person. Defamation is a very difficult tort to prove on the part of the plaintiff because there are a number of defenses and privileges to uh, defamation claims. The, the classic defense to a defamation case is true. Truth is an absolute defense to a defamation claim. Uh, but the plaintiff bears the burden of proving the falsity of the allegedly defamatory statement, meaning that the plaintiff is in the position of having to prove a negative. That is, that uh, what the person, the defendant said is untrue or did not, that event did not happen or uh, that the statement is false. And proving the falsity of, of a statement is much more difficult than proving the truth of a statement. Uh, there are some clear-cut cases of defamation. For example, if someone were accused of committing an act of domestic violence against their spouse, uh, that would be a defamatory statement. But if the plaintiff could prove, hey, I was in another state with 25 other people at the time you said that I committed this act of domestic violence, uh, that would be a fairly easy, clear-cut case of defamation. But where a plaintiff, a plaintiff is trying to prove, hey, I didn't do that, I did not commit that act, uh, proving a negative is very difficult to do. It would ultimately have been a question for a jury to determine whether uh, the statements that he might point to and say, hey, you know, these statements are, are about me, even though I'm not named, these statements are about me. Uh, a jury would ultimately have had to make the determination, assuming we did not get a dismissal from the court on a motion for summary judgment, because he's not named and he is not discussed in your podcast. Assuming the judge uh, did not dismiss his claims against you and your podcast, then ultimately it would have been for a jury to determine whether the words used uh, were sufficient to identify him. Here, this case uh, took on a very slow pace because uh, the plaintiffs changed lawyers, uh, which caused a great deal of delay. And we, as your lawyers, had to go back to court a number of times with motions to compel the plaintiffs to respond fully to our written discovery interrogatories, which are just written questions that have to be answered under oath by the party responding to the interrogatories and to our request for production of documents. And, uh, you know, our belief was that the plaintiffs were not being forthcoming in their discovery responses, which required us to go to court. Uh, then you have to wait on the court to rule sometimes, and then you have to wait on the plaintiffs to respond according to the judge's orders. Uh, there were motions for, for protective orders, and there were a lot of motions filed in this case, which made it proceed very, very slowly by normal standards. Protective order did place a great deal of limitations on what could be said outside of the court proceedings about the case, and then even within the court proceedings, certain information had to be filed under seal. That is, uh, 
uh, filed in a way that the public could not access the information. It was not a gag order, uh, but it was somewhere bordering on a gag order. So, uh, in most cases, the plaintiff's objective is to get to trial. Uh, plaintiff's lawyers typically work on a contention fee, meaning if their client has received money, uh, then the plaintiff's lawyer receives no money. And so the objective is to get a case to trial as quickly as possible. And the, the, the strategy being that uh, a trial date places a great deal of pressure on defendants to either put up some money to settle a case or go risk an adverse judgment at trial. So uh, the, you typically see plaintiff's lawyers really pushing cases forward and trying to get to a trial date. It appeared to me the plaintiffs were delaying depositions and stalling. Yeah, I mean, particularly with one of the plaintiff's depositions, we're in the process of concluding uh, Mr. Miller's deposition. Oh, well, we were coming back for a second day. As for I our day. Our day, our day. We had, that's, that's right. We had not yet questioned Mr. Miller. And then after the conclusion of the first day of his deposition, the plaintiff's lawyer gave us reasons why we could not come back for the second day of, of Mr. Miller's deposition. And further that, Ms. Goodman's deposition, which was to follow the day after the conclusion of, of uh, Mr. Miller's deposition, that she would not be present for her deposition. And so, uh, you know, what was actually going on, we don't really know. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the reasons given to us uh, for their unavailability, but it certainly did not follow that traditional path that I described a moment ago, where the plaintiff's lawyer is trying to get depositions over with, trying to get written discovery over with, and hey, let's get this thing to trial. What do you think this lawsuit really was about? It's hard to say. It's hard to get into the minds of uh, the plaintiffs and their lawyer. Uh, oftentimes, uh, lawsuits are filed with the thought that someone, some some defendant will settle and pay some money to make this go away. If we make it uncomfortable enough, potentially embarrassing, uh, that money will be paid just to get rid of it. Uh, Good lawyer, good plaintiff's lawyers try to create doubt in the minds of the defendants, uh, create uh, a, a risk tipping point, as I call it, where the risk uh, to my reputation, to my my personal finances, uh, is is great enough that I would rather pay something uh, to hedge further risk to my reputation and to my finances, uh, and then there's also you know, uh, some defendants just don't want to spend the time that it takes. As you know, uh, a lawsuit is very time-consuming. You and I spend lots and lots of time on the phone, uh, lots and lots of time exchanging emails, you know, uh, you pulling documents and having to answer written discovery. So it's very time-consuming, and there's a cost, uh, you know, there's a, uh, a cost-benefit analysis there, too. It's the uh, opportunity cost. How much is it going to cost me in the things that I'm doing to make a living 
uh, in terms of the time that I have to spend on this lawsuit versus what can I pay just to make it go away. So there are lots of things that generic, you know, just generically with lawsuits that might cause a lawsuit to be filed. Here, I don't know what was in the minds of the plaintiffs, what they were thinking, if they legitimately thought that their character and standing in the community was uh, injured, um, and if they were morally outraged. Those conversations would be protected by the attorney-client privilege between the plaintiffs and their lawyers. Uh, so I really can only speculate in terms of generally what goes into the filing of uh, thinking that When I first heard about the lawsuit, my initial thought was we're getting too close in Christian's case. This is a tactic to shut it down. This was the ultimate way to stop people from talking about Christian Andriacchio's case and looking into it and what actually happened that day and holding people accountable to the truth. That's a, that, that very well could be true, Sheila. There are, uh, uh, there's a type of lawsuit called a SLAP suit. Uh, SLAP is S-L-A-P-P, it's an acronym. But essentially, there are lawsuits uh, that a party that parties file to shut up another party. Uh, it's to put so much pressure on them that they back away. You typically see SLAP suits against corporate whistleblowers, government whistleblowers sometimes, uh, and uh, it happens with just regular civil litigation. It's not necessarily, uh, it might not necessarily be labeled a slap suit, but it's uh, a suit to back someone off of uh, whatever the plaintiff is offended by or worried about or concerned about. So that is not uncommon. Now, Mississippi does not have an anti-slap. Uh, no, we do not. Uh, there are... I don't remember the number of states nationally that have anti-slap suit statutes that put a very early end to those types of suits, particularly, you know, those that lack merit. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of half of the states have anti-slap suit statutes. Mississippi is not one of those states. Tennessee is one of those states. From my initial involvement in the case, and then after listening uh, to all episodes of your, of your podcast, uh, I felt very, very good about our defense. Uh, my belief was and, and remains that your podcast was was uh, very well put together. It was not, uh, you know, slap shot, uh, baseless allegations being thrown out. Uh, I felt like uh, you had done your homework. You and your team had done your homework. Uh, and that there was evidence to support the truth or the accuracy of the statements made in your podcast, and that the allegations or that the the things that the plaintiffs uh, complain about were really the natural conclusions to be drawn from your presentation. And so I believe, you know, my belief was is that they were complaining about things that were not actually said, but the natural conclusions that could be drawn from facts in the case. So I felt very, very good, very, very confident in our defense had we had to go to trial in this case. 
And I think ultimately we created enough doubt on the other side about the strength of their case, which led to the resolution that we were able to get on you and without warnings behalf. Mike, you took evidence that we were going to put on the record in Jet Miller's deposition and shared it with his attorney. Do you think that was a turning point? I believe very strongly that was the turning point. Uh, I believe that the information, uh, not speculation, not theories, rumors, innuendos, not, you know, tent, oil hat, conspiracy theories, but actual facts and evidence that you had assembled uh, when we presented it to the other side, sort of off the record, was not in a deposition. Uh, I believe that information ultimately led to the dismissal of the case, not only against you and without warning, but against all of had you not presented that evidence? Well, I mean, it, one way of referring to it, we reached uh, what might be called a walk-away agreement. That is, everybody just walks away. All suit is dropped. Uh, we signed an agreement, as you know, but all parties signed an agreement that contained uh, the terms of the walk-away. You know, lawyers have to get involved and add all sorts of terms and conditions, and, and of course, that's uh, very valid. Lawyers, even in a walkaway agreement where no money is being paid, uh, they still want to protect their clients. Uh, they still have a duty to their clients to protect them as the lawsuit is being wound up and ultimately dismissed. Uh, but your your statement is accurate that uh, this was just a walkaway agreement. You walk away, we walk away. I want to be very clear. I was not going to settle, and not one penny was paid to the plaintiffs. They walked away with stipulations that we couldn't talk about certain things. There were conditions that I refused to agree to, one of which was the gag order. It had to be dropped for me to walk away. Right. That, that was part of uh, what ultimately became a protracted negotiation process where Lawyers for all parties uh, are trying to get uh, terms and conditions that protected their client, but also did not unnecessarily place their client at risk of a future lawsuit. And the uh, the dissolution uh, or uh, getting rid of the protective order that was in place in the lawsuit. Uh, was something that was very important to you and one of the terms that, you know, was non-negotiable for us. So ultimately that protective order was dissolved when the lawsuit was dismissed. And that, of course, gives you um, the, uh, the freedom and the leeway to, you know, to talk about this this case, the Andrew Arakio case, which is uh, something I know you feel very passionately about. Uh, and uh, so, yes, that was something that, you know, took a good deal of uh, back and forth negotiation because uh, the plaintiffs felt very strongly they wanted it to remain in place. And so in lieu of the protective order, we agreed to some terms that provided, you know, uh, protections for the plaintiffs that they felt very strongly about that we could live with, such as protecting their, uh, you know, their address, telephone numbers, social media addresses, and their uh, health information and, and the like. Mike, the $47 million number is staggering. 
where do you think that came from? That was uh, plucked out of plucked out of thin air. There was no rhyme or reason to do it. I, I spent maybe five minutes trying to figure out where the numbers came from, and, and realized pretty quickly that was and that's that's very typical in lawsuits. Lawyers, uh, you know, if you put uh, a low number, that can limit you down the line at trial, and you can't. I mean, there is some law that allows a jury to award more than the plaintiff actually asked for in their complaint, but you can always come down, but it's very difficult to go up. Uh, here, the plaintiffs asked for $5 million in actual economic damages and $42 million in punitive damages. Those numbers were grossly inflated for a variety of reasons that I, you know, suffice it to say, $47 million was a grossly inflated ask in the in the complaint. Uh, as I understand it, Mississippi has caps on lawsuits. That, and that's the reason that the, the numbers were, were just sort of absurdly inflated, the numbers that they asked for in the complaint. Uh, we have a cap on what's called non-economic damages. You know, the non-lawyers might understand those damages to be pain and suffering damages, uh, damages for my mental anguish. Uh, those damages are capped at $1 million. And then the only other damages, uh, non-punitive damages that a party can receive in a lawsuit are actual economic damages. That is money that I have lost. I was out of work for six months. And during that six months, I would have made X thousand dollars. You can get those damages are not capped. Uh, And then we have a a fairly uh, strong cap on punitive damages uh, that would have limited the plaintiffs to, you know, for, say, for example, 4% of a defendant's net worth. And so, you know, unless some defendant that I don't know about was worth, you know, a couple of billion dollars, they were never going to get to $42 million in uh, punitive damages. In Mississippi, prior to, uh, we had two rounds of court reform here, it was either late 90s or 2002, 2004, where the limitations uh, were placed on punitive damages. Before that, we were known as a jackpot justice state where there were no limitations on punitive damages. And we had some very, very large punitive damage awards in Mississippi. To be awarded damages, though, you have to prove your case. Correct. The plaintiff bears the burden of proving each of those four elements that I, I described earlier. Of course, defendants such as yourself and your podcast have the burden of proving any defenses, such as truth, absolute defense, or there are certain privileges uh, that are also defenses. Uh, the defendant bears the burden of proving uh, privilege or defense, but the plaintiff bears the initial burden of proving their claims. And if, if they fail to prove any of those four elements, then the case ends or should end at that point. The plaintiff's attorney. Seth took away character allegations. Uh, you know, Sheila, I don't exactly know. I uh, don't know what the thinking was behind admitting that. I didn't notice that. Uh, reputation uh, or alleged damage, damage to the plaintiff's reputation was in both, both the original complaint and the proposed second amended complaint. But I did note that character, which appeared damage to character, 
uh, appeared in the first complaint, but not in the second amended complaint. That could purely be, uh, you know, lawyers all draft things differently. Uh, the, the, the second plaintiff's lawyer, uh, Mr. Hunter, may have chosen uh, for reasons that we will never know to take character out, or it may have been very purposeful that character damage to the plaintiff's character was removed from the proposed second amended complaint. Character embodies a lot of things, truthfulness. Uh, it's really kind of, if you ask 100 people to define character, you would get 100 different definitions. Some people might say uh, your spirituality, your, truth, your truthfulness, uh, your altruism or charity that you do, uh, how you treat others, how you treat children, how you treat you know, pets and dogs, uh, how you treat strangers. Uh, you know, someone might define it very simply as if you found a billfold on the street before turning it in, would you take the $20 out of the billfold? But there are a lot of ways to define character. Uh, I don't know that the law provides a definitive definition of character. Uh, you know, we all, it's sort of like we know it, we know good character when we see it, and we know bad character when we see it. Going through the last little bit of the negotiations of what we'll agree to doing the walkaway agreement, does it still kind of present that this case wouldn't have done well in court, that they walked away? That's certainly, I think, a very valid view of it. Um, plaintiffs typically do not walk away from good cases without being paid something. That's why they filed the lawsuit. That's why the lawyer took the lawsuit because they believe that there was some value in it. Now, lawyers do sometimes file cases, plaintiffs sometimes file cases uh, to make a statement, to uh, to vindicate a position without any real expectation of receiving money. But this case, I believe, ultimately uh, was about uh, money. Now, uh, the plaintiffs might say, no, it was about vindicating my reputation, my character, uh, restoring my standing in the community, uh, restoring damage done to my reputation. Uh, but, you know, most lawsuits are about money, and plaintiff lawyers and defense lawyers would agree with that statement. And so for a lawsuit to be dismissed voluntarily by the plaintiffs uh, for no money, I think that certainly uh, is a big statement on the relative strengths and weaknesses of the plaintiff's claims and the defendant's defenses. The lawsuit brought to light that, number one, I'm not going to settle. Number two, I can put a hell of a good case together. And number three, everything in the lawsuit that they alleged was false. I think this case was going to set a precedent one way or the other. It was an important case for podcasters and the First Amendment, along with all the families out there trying to get their cases of their loved ones in the media. But instead, it had the opposite effect. I agree with that, Sheila. Uh, you know, one of the things that the, uh, the both state and federal courts, but partic particularly the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, one of the phrases that you see very frequently, particularly in freedom of the press cases, is chilling effect. 
that's the, the, the phrase or the, the combination of words that courts use, and that is that, that tension between First Amendment, Amendment freedoms that I talked about earlier and uh, protection against certain types of speech that the court has determined not to be protected by the First Amendment, but uh, where the press is concerned, and I, I believe that uh, uh, without warning is a is uh, falls within the umbrella of the press. It's a journalistic endeavor. Defamation claims run the risk of what's called what the courts call a chilling effect. That is causing other media outlets, journalists, broadcasters, writers, to shrink from the truth, to shrink from writing or, or broadcasting on matters of public interest, that, that, that chilling effect had this case gone forward, and particularly if there had been a jury verdict in favor of the plaintiffs, would have had that chilling effect uh, that the courts are cautious about uh, on future and other uh, broadcasters, journalists, publishers, not just regarding the Andreacchio case, but other uh, matters of public interest. The resolution of this case, favorable to you and to without warning and the other defendants, uh, would undo some of that chilling effect. My hope is, is that the outcome in this case would be uh, a positive sign for those who are commenting on matters of public interest, uh, broadcasting, podcasting, writing about matters of public interest, because a free and uh, a free and vibrant press is critical to our uh, democracy. And so uh, hopefully any damage done by the filing of the complaint was undone by its ultimate demise. And then the lawsuit had, from the plaintiff's perspective, had the unintended consequence of drawing more attention to Christian's death and the events both preceding and following his death. I think it generated more interest in Christian's uh, death. And so I certainly would, I think, would be an unintended consequence uh, for the plaintiff's perspective of filing their lawsuit. Mike, I've said this to you many times. I appreciate your work, the quality of work, the fact that you stood up for what is right and said, no, we're not going forward anymore. We're not playing games anymore. This is what we got. This is what we're going to do. Because of the quality of work that you did and how you managed the plaintiff attorney, myself and everybody else got out of that lawsuit. Excellent work, and I thank you so much. Well, thank you for saying I, I, uh, I always hate, you know, uh, representing good people in lawsuits. I always hate that they're in a lawsuit, but it's always a pleasure to represent good people in lawsuits particularly good people who are as prepared and thorough as you were. Join me this season as I take you behind the curtain of the $47 million lawsuit that Jet Miller and Whitley Goodman brought against myself, the Andreacchio family, and other podcasters. You will hear the truth as I take you inside the lawsuit, beginning from the initial call from Ray Andreacchio. You will hear from my attorney, Mike Simmons, who represented me in the lawsuit. You will hear Jet Miller himself as I play actual audio from his deposition. I will take you into the good 
the bad and the ugly, exposing emotionally charged emails. The curtain will open on defamation or truth in the matter of Christian Andriacchio. If you know anything at all, call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at sheilawysaki.com.